0: welcome to a news laundry podcast this is global summits where are we going hi i'm
1: Biraj swain and this is news laundry podcast global summits where are we going a country which virtually produces no greenhouse gas is at the brunt of the most severe climate impact said who michael c hall also known as dexter in the much celebrated series years of living dangerously we'll provide the link The country he was referring to was Bangladesh, but it could be Philippines, most countries of South Asia, Latin America, or any and every country of Sub-Saharan Africa, or worse, the small island developing states in Polynesia, Pacific, Indian Oceans. It could be my home state Odisha too. And the dichotomy that Michael C. Hall, also known as Dexter, highlights and the global conference trying to address that and our future immediate and distant is the topic of today's discussion. We are discussing the 21st Conference of Parties or the UN Climate Change Summit, which is scheduled from November 30th till 11th December in Paris. This is a curtain raiser episode to the final COP, but we shall also be taking stock of the Bonn climate talks that concluded recently. In today's episode, we shall discuss COP 21. Why should we care? We shall also listen in from our panelists on the recently concluded bond talks and the heavy lifting South Africa did there. We shall understand the specifics on the table from emissions reduction, equitable energy access, technology transfer to green climate fund. Who is actually picking the tab or is anyone? And since one of our panelists institution has come up with a fact checked hard hitting report. Capitan America, U.S. Climate Goals, a reckoning. We shall also ask our panelists to assess the role of United States, European Union, 28 countries, Australia and Japan and the role they have played from Lima to Paris and in between. We'll take stock of India's pitch and participation and the not-so-recent statement of Arvind Subramaniam, Prime Minister's Chief Economic Advisor, to ditch G77 and align with the U.S., will also push our experts to tell us how does India's intra-country policies square up vis-a-vis its equity champion role globally. Public policy duplicity or schizophrenia or smart and self-preservative? And we shall push our experts to share their candid expectations from COP21 and the morning after. We have a kick-ass panel to discuss this. And for those of our listeners who've been wondering, why do I use the word kick-ass so often? Because they're really kick-ass, fantastic people with solid body of work. When we started Global Summit series, we promised you we won't have pretentious punditry or all-male panels, i.e. man And that's not counting me. And we have kept both the Promises' sixth episode down the road every single fortnight. Better still, we haven't repeated a single panelist yet, though that is happenstance only and not great always. Last episode on social protection, for example, we opened with Sanjay Reddy of New School, New York. He's the original author of Global Social Fund proposal and the idea, if the world ever achieves it, that will be his legacy contribution to the 7 billion people on the planet and more. Hence, kick-ass panel it is. Since our Global Summit's topics are so technical, we try to keep it colloquial by using kick-ass are fantastic. But anyone... Of our listeners has any other suggestive words please write in I'll take them on before I bring in the panelists please remember programs like these are possible because of independent media when corporates pay corporates' agenda is served when people pay your agenda is served please support news laundry please support independent media help us to keep news free now let's listen in to the highlights of India's intended nationally determined contribution INDC
2: On the 3rd of October, the Union Environment Ministry submitted India's intended nationally determined contributions to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, committing to cut emissions intensity by 33 to 35% by 2030 from the 2005 levels. It reiterated Prime Minister Narendra Modi's emphasis on climate justice in his September 25 UN General Assembly Address. They emphasized eight key goals – sustainable lifestyles, cleaner economic development, reducing emission intensity of GDP, increasing the share of non-fossil fuel-based electricity, enhancing carbon sink, adaptation and mobilizing finance, technology transfer and capacity building. India has committed to 40% of non-fossil fuel energy to be adopted by 2030. It has also set the target of generating 3 billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent of carbon sinks in the form of forests. The INDCs point to tripling of India's electricity demand by 2030, for which thermal energy is unavoidable. However, Mr. Javadekar pointed out that even for thermal power, emission norms have been made more stringent. India cited its lower per capita emissions, underlining less responsibility to act compared to other top emitters, such as US, China and EU.
1: We have with us today D. Raghunandan, Director, Center for Science, Technology and Development, and member of Delhi Science Forum, a ProPublica left-leaning initiative. Welcome to the show, Raghu. Thank you. Vijayta Rattani, Senior Researcher at the Center for Science and Environment looking at climate negotiations. She was at the Bond Climate Talks and will be in Paris too. Welcome to the show, Vijayta. Thank Thank you, Vedanj joining us from kenya nairobi via phone mm-hmm. ben phillips the policy and campaigns director of action Ed international a leading pro-justista ngo welcome to the show ben thank you for having me and last but not the least nitin Sethi of business standard who is a prolific writer on climate he has been tracking the cops and his dispatches from Bonn, were tweeted not just by india's permanent mission at the united nations but many southern climate justice campaigns too however he's stuck in traffic he's on his way so we hope to have him sooner than later Raghu, why should we care some would say cops have been going on from 1992 to 2015 there seemed to be an excuse to junket at taxpayers expenses especially after the cop-out at copenhagen seriously why should we care
3: uh, two reasons uh, one is that Copenhagen was first set as supposedly the deadline for all countries to arrive at an international agreement. And we all know that didn't happen. Uh, and in fact, Copenhagen led to another five years of tortuous negotiations. But there's a new deadline. Uh, and it looks as if in Paris there is going to be a deal. an agreement uh, of some kind. How good, how bad, I'm sure we'll talk about. But there is going to be some agreement. Uh, All indications are it's not going to be as good as what uh, we would have hoped for. But the reason we should care is that if this agreement is either not reached or if the agreement is a below-par agreement in terms of how much emissions are reduced, then we are in for serious trouble in the sense that uh, the world has fixed a maximum goal of of not allowing temperature to rise more than 2 degrees Celsius. Some would argue that even that is very high, that it's too much, that we are already seeing the consequences of a global temperature rise when temperatures have risen 1 point something. Uh, we are seeing more extreme weather events, we are seeing greater amount of heat waves. These are only going to get worse. And the longer we delay reaching an agreement, or the weaker the agreement we get, the world is going to suffer, the developing countries are going to suffer the most, and the poor in developing countries are going to suffer even more than anybody else. That's why we should care.
0: Vegeta? Yeah, I just want to elaborate on uh, what Raghu just mentioned because he mentioned very pertinent points that we have a temperature goal which is 2 degrees centigrade beyond which IPCC says that catastrophic and irreversible events will happen. And
1: IPCC is?
0: Is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and it is the body which produces so-called authentic literature and most reliable uh, literature on climate change and its impact. And as Raghu also mentioned, that uh, the poor and the developing countries, the emerging economies, they are the most who are most affected and worstly affected by climate change impacts, not the rich. So it is in our interest to get a very ambitious deal at Paris. And that is why it is important. And Paris is important, that is why. And equally more important is to have not just a deal, but an ambitious and equitable deal.
1: Ben. Ben. Your thoughts, since you are British, Northern, but lived with Southern solidarity throughout your life, and now you work from one of the countries located in the hungriest part of the world, Kenya, which is part of Horn, East and Central Africa. Why should we care from your perspective?
4: We should care because this is a huge human crisis. This is about hundreds of thousands of lives uprooted. This is about people already living on the edge pushed over the edge. This is about farms that become unfarmable, lands that become uninhabitable for human beings, not about polar bears and pandas. I'm just going to give two examples from colleagues in Bangladesh. A girl called Shabana and a girl called Amina. They're both 13 years old, and they're both living in lands in Bangladesh that are extremely precarious because of climate change. And what the um, helpers who work with them say is that they are much more vulnerable to child marriage if climate change continues to be unabated, because the stresses and strains on already vulnerable people looking for desperate ways out, being pushed out of where they live, being forced to crisis-type solutions is getting worse and worse. So for kids like Shabana and Amina, this is their future, this is their life. Climate change is the ultimate inequality story, because it's the richest and most powerful who have occupied the ecological space, who have filled the atmosphere with CO2. And it's those that have emitted the least carbon dioxide, those who have done the least, who are suffering the most. And inequality is also the reason why this is so hard to fix, because the rich and powerful are getting in the way of a good, fair deal, which would tackle climate change properly. So we should care about this because it's a human story and because it's an inequality story.
1: Thank you, Ben. Vijeta, at the Bond talks, South Africa is reported to have said, if the world would have changed, we would all be members of Security Council with veto power. South Africa has also done some blunt name calling of the chair and the resistance of the chair to take G77 and China's inputs into the text. Your thoughts? And I also understand civil society was debarred from the talks of the negotiations. Yes, yes. So.
0: Ahead of the Bonn Climate Talks, the co-chairs of the ADP and ADP is the negotiating track under which the climate negotiations, it's a very big name, it's Ad-Hoc Working Group on Durban Platform for Enhanced Action. (laughs) That is the full name of ADP. So under this ADP, the negotiations are conducted and co-chairs facilitate the negotiations. So they produced a text so-called inclusive text. They were supposed to uh, produce an inclusive text because they had the sense of the room, supposedly. But the text that was brought out, that was in the form of non-paper, and it was vehemently opposed by developing countries, (coughs) represented by G77 and China, because they called it very lopsided, unfair, imbalanced. They use all these words. And then it was proposed that some essential must-haves must be inserted in this text, and they were called surgical insertions, so that to to make the text more balanced. So this work of co-chairs, which should have been done before, was done in these five days of negotiations in Bonn. So the entire Bonn session was only dedicated to inserting, mostly these, capturing these proposals and reflections from developing countries and other parties who thought about various options. So, yes, that is true, that uh, the text that we had initially was very non-balanced, it was very unfair. But at the end of the summit, yes, we can say the text that we have now is more... uh, You're happy happy with with it. it? Happy in the sense it is not a negotiated text, please understand. It does just have options. We still have to negotiate it, but this will serve as the point of negotiation. It will serve as the basis of negotiations. So that way, yes, some amount of trust has been restored, some amount of credibility has been restored, but it's a long way still to go to convert this document into the official Paris deal agreement.
1: We're happy to tell our listeners that Nitin Sethi has joined us finally. And like I said, that his dispatches from Bonn were some of the most tweeted uh, uh, stories, not just by the India's mission at the UN, permanent mission at UN in New York, but also a lot of southern campaigns. So, Nitin, considering some of your stories actually acquired cult status, what is your take on the Bonn climate talks? And while you are at it, also tell our listeners why should we care? Well, I you think do that... care since you've been consistently writing about it, but why should our listeners be caring? And also, what happened at Bonn?
5: Well, I think let's take the last question yes. first. I don't think it's, I'm not sure whether I care or I'm uh, addicted to tracking this as following what geopolitics really is globally on this issue. Two, I think the reason uh, we need to care as citizens in general, especially in the southern world, is uh, it does impact our immediate and long-term future quite dramatically. And the early indications from the balanced text is that the text doesn't seem to go far enough to provide us security in the long-term. It does, perhaps at best, the way its position at the moment suggests that we could possibly, if we fought very hard, secure a short-term space for development as we see it today. I think that, at the moment, is the best we are poised to achieve out of the Paris Agreement. And we'll continue to hear from most countries that we are fantastically on the road to a better future. I think that's an estimation that the governments have built for themselves and an optics that the governments need to create because there's so much expectations out of the Paris meeting. Some of them, I think, are more hyper-sounding rather than what the content suggests would come through eventually.
1: Raghu, your reaction to the Bond climate talks?
3: See, most of these, as Vijayta said earlier, they are steps towards what's going to happen in Paris. Uh, And one of the battles has been to see that uh, the text that finally emerges from Paris is not a text which has been formulated in secret in what is called green room talks somewhere or pushed by the chairs. And they are pushed by the chairs because they represent the opinions of some powerful uh, countries. So to that extent these um, summits which are in preparation for Paris have managed to some extent to open up the process and ensure that other voices are also built in uh, to the text. However, as Nitin said, I think what we are looking at at Paris and we we'll talk about this uh, later, is still going to be a uh, an agreement shaped by the dominant powers uh, of the world and one can see that being reflected in the various uh, stages. I would just like to add one word of caution about why we should care, but also why we should be careful. I think a lot of people, especially in civil society, in 2009 expected great things at Copenhagen. And when it didn't happen,
1: there the was disappointment almost two was years yeah.
3: of quiescence right. in civil society, because everyone was so disheartened and disappointed and disillusioned, that uh, we shouldn't allow that to happen. We should be mentally prepared uh, that Paris is not going to be the perfect deal that uh, we may want.
1: The less than perfect negotiation. And
3: we should, I think, visualize the future as a set of struggles which is going to start from Paris mm, rather mor- than Paris. We'll also being talk about the
1: morning after. Planet.
3: Yes. Yeah. So I think we should just keep yeah. that in mind.
1: Ben, you've spent enough of your time in the trenches, dungeons of international negotiations. And I know you've always been very critical about A, how some of these processes are rigged, and B, how plurilateral sometimes also becomes huge victim of backroom negotiations, green room communications and 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 caucuses that is completely away from any kind of public scrutiny. Uh, I would particularly like to listen from you, I'm sure our listeners would be interested, about the partisan uh, uh, behavior, both at Lima and at Bond, which is resisted also, considering South Africa actually did say that it's almost like apartheid 2.0. So what do you have to say about this consistent recurring head, ugly head of partisan coaches coming up?
4: I think the thing to remember is that these are, these are not gentle intellectual debates where all parties fairly and reasonably seek to find the most intelligent ways forward. These are tough power struggles and it has always been the case and continues to be the case that the rich countries and the corporate interests within those rich countries and particularly the fossil fuel lobby within those rich countries do everything they can do to warp and twist the processes in their favor to avoid responsibility, to make the emissions cut, and to avoid responsibility to provide the financing that is needed. The only response that can be a real response to that is for developing countries to maintain unity and for civil society to maintain unity and for civil society and developing country governments to maintain unity with each other. There's been an erosion of trust in the process because of the way in which the process has been managed. But one of the positives is we are seeing a kind of unity now amongst developing countries and amongst civil society and between those two that we haven't seen in many years. And that's that's some reason for optimism, maybe not about Paris, but about the potential ultimately for this to be tackled is if we can marshal those forces together.
1: Uh, RAGHU I understand the text is almost finalized, though you say that there's a lot of ratcheted conversations which will happen in Paris also. But the website, the official website, also says that 148 countries have conquered to the text. So take our listeners through what exactly is on the table at Paris in a few bullet points. OK, Vijeta, why don't you?
0: Take yes. So, as you are saying that it's a finalized text, no, it's not. Yeah. As I said, it is. Uh, it's, it's an unedited draft version, mm-hmm. as the paper says, So, and it has.
1: That is the synthesis
0: report, report that came out, which has compiled and assessed the aggregate effect of the INDCs. Mm-hmm. That was also the mandate of the Lima Summit to have this synthesis report. Mm-hmm. These two things are different. Mm-hmm. When you are talking about the bond text, it's still. An unnegotiated progress, text. Okay. It's so a work in progress, progress, and we have to start basically from scratch because mm-hmm. we haven't negotiated on issues, on points, on articles. So, under every heading, there are a lot of options. So, it's basically compiled text. Mm-hmm. So, and as I said, it's a long way to go till this is transformed into this. And, and what, what
1: exactly, exactly? The t- is on the table, if you can tell telegraphically in three bullet points?
0: If you say what's on table, we have the synthesis report. Mm-hmm. Which, which talks which about, about the aggregate effect of INDCs, mm-hmm. which tells us that uh, the INDCs do not add up to th- 2 degrees centigrade, which is the temperature goal. Mm-hmm. In fact, it says it adds up to 2.8. Mm-hmm. We at CSE have done some number crunching which says it's more than 3 degrees. So we are not on the way. So, so this, so this
1: is, is the emission, emission cuts, cuts and all the collective activities yes. which yeah. will be yeah. undertaken. So, so INDCs
0: are the Voluntary Climate Action Plans. Right. They are called Intended Nationally Determined Contributions in the climate parlance language. So right. that's a legal word. Yes. But most simply, it's the National Climate Action Plans. These are voluntary pledges. Yes. These are not enforced. So the synthesis report has compiled it and, and it has said that it will lead us to almost three degrees. We say it is more than th- three degrees. So we are not on the path. So this makes even more urgency for a strong and ambitious climate deal at Paris. Mm-hmm. But as all indications show, I don't think we are on the right track.
3: Mm-hmm. Now if I can supplement uh, what Vijayta just said, the text as it stands now, like Vijayta rightly said, is lays down all the options. And what has been done now at Bonn is to ensure that all the different options are on the table rather than a select few uh, options. But then we have to go through that tortuous process of negotiating these different options and we don't know what's going to be the outcome. The only thing we know is these voluntary pledges that the different countries have made. Again, what we don't know, however, is if we know that these are inadequate, What is proposed to be done about it? This is something which we don't know uh, and when we discuss the Paris summit in a little more detail I think then we can see uh, what problems that poses that we haven't yet, whatever the other terms of the agreement we haven't even got down to the basic issue of how do we ensure that the Paris summit comes out with an emissions control agreement which serves the purpose of limiting temperature rise to 2 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. And can I also add that it has to be equitable also.
1: Mm. Nitin, what do you think is the big elephant in the room in in Paris?
5: I think the three or four that come to my mind right on top. One, uh, I think there's a good likelihood, and we've seen indications towards that, that the Question, the answer to the question of climate finance will perhaps lie outside what people are referring to as a core agreement that would be signed. Two, the question of, as Raghu uh, was saying, about ratcheting up these existing pledges, how they would be ratcheted up over next five years or periodically every five to 10 years. Indication is it will be every five years now that France has a joint statement with China. The ratcheting up will not be of the nature where it's a top-down process where countries or a certain set of experts dictate that how much each country should do. There would perhaps be, as uh, this phrase used by the coaches, there will be a stock take on the basis of which countries would be left to, as perhaps what the U.S. suggests. There will be sunshine on the numbers and people will think better of what to do. That looks at the as a likely frame. Then there are other questions, I think, which have long-term implications, which are right now being talked in very settled terms, but I think they'll play up very loudly in coming days. One is this entire idea of what is a long-term goal to be achieved by the Paris Agreement. It seems like a very innocuous, nice term, and everyone should be in favour of it. But the actual phrase that you use and how you define this long-term goal completely alters the pattern by which... The distribution of burden is done over different countries. At the moment, we've got phrases like decarbonization, climate neutral, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Each of them are undefined. But there are indications of what people mean when they say this. At the moment, if you remember in Warsaw, we had only agreed to the idea that we must keep the temperature rise below two degrees. That was the only long term goal. And not the only goal, but one of the key long-term goals. That is now trying, some countries are trying to redefine that as a quantum of effort that one must make without defining an umbrella target is there, but not defining what's under that umbrella. So that's a very contentious thing, and I think it will blow up. In the recent few months, we've seen both US and EU ask for this while using different terms. So I think that's a possible area where we're looking at a mine blow up in coming days. Then there's small questions again, which I think nuances that will miss the big headlines but will matter is the idea of differentiation. So say I'll give you an example. In the case of finance, uh, developed countries, most of the developed countries have suggested that countries in the position to do so must also add to the climate finance pool. Now, it opens up a Pandora's box of what does it mean position to do so, who defines this position how is it quantified, it goes back to the entire history of equity etc etc.
1: And uh, funny you're saying that because I was in New York for the STG summit and the GA and that's where China declared its 1 billion dollar check and the amount of pressure that Indian bureaucrats were facing at that point of time to make a similar declaration that was really palpable over there also. I, the would say,
5: I would say the Chinese because of the economic position that they have are at a very different level. Yes, now, absolutely. they've made a 3 billion, if I'm not mistaken, 3 US billion dollar pledge. It's a South-South pledge. Again, if you read the France-China joint statement, they're very clear, this is a South-South mm-hmm. pledge. This is on the basis of countries willing to do so. India is also agreeable to that language. The question is, when you come to a point, we say somebody will sit and judge whether you're in a position to do so or not. Now, these are phrases which are being tossed around at the moment, countries, up Dealing with them. But on this, I think you will find a degree of universality across G77. Though, again, as our guest was saying, I think the question of whether G77 will stick together in Paris as it has done in Bonn, I have serious doubts. At Bonn, I think it was in a way, we had reached a stage where it was existential. They came together because simply none of them were being heard. At that point, it was just, there was a simple signal in some sense to say that we must be heard. And if you remember that was what uh, the representative of Colombia said, that's what the G77 chair, Ambassador Disico said. But when it comes down to breaking down saying what are different national interests and how do you negotiate them, you will find the fractions coming up again. An example of this is the recently concluded GCF meeting, where we saw that the LDCs, the least developed countries, backed off from their own agenda. And this is the game has not even begun, some, so to say. So those pressures, and again, real geopolitics, one must be pragmatic, it will play into the game.
1: Um, ben, um, now that Nitin has already mentioned the Green, Green Climate Fund, I remember some of the, the uh, think pieces and reactives which came out from your pen and of your colleagues after the Addis Agenda outcome was about how the uh, technology transfer paragraph was a historical, diluted, retrospective, and unjust to Say a few words, few colourful adjectives, and ITUC actually said business unusual, unusual or less than usual. So, do you get similar vibes about the Green Climate Fund? And before you answer that, for our listeners, what Nitin raised is actually important, and it's a recurring theme across all our episodes in the global summits, the inexact definition, the non-definition and the amount of leeway it gives for powerful, be it in the freedom of assembly and association or be it in global climate negotiations about uh, um, countries or uh, bureaucracy or legal mechanism to play around with the rights and around with the core value of justice. Um, Sorry, Ben your reactions to the Green Climate Fund and the shenanigans around that?
4: There needs to be a transfer of resources from rich countries to developing countries. But the way in which the Green Climate Fund is operating at the moment is unacceptable. We're seeing loans being offered instead of grants. You can't trash someone's house and then offer them a loan with interest to fix it. Needs to be grants. We're seeing a partnership in the Green Climate Fund, with Deutsche Bank, one of the biggest backers of coal, the dirtiest fuel in the north. And we're also seeing grants uh, or projects being provided without proper checks as to whether they violate people's rights. One most recently, just in the past few hours, in Peru, that may violate indigenous people's rights. So we're seeing um, loans and grants, we're seeing projects without proper scrutiny, we're seeing a partnership with a bank of coal, and we are seeing a mechanism which should be a noble system for transferring the resources that are needed to help the poorest people cope with the damage created by the richest people. But that is not what we're seeing in practice. So the Green Climate Fund needs to be urgently fixed.
1: Vijeta, you wanted to come in?
0: Yes, I wanted to add on some points. Like, as you said, and it's a very important thing that finance is going to be the crucial issue because the uh, Green Climate Fund, which has the mandate of $100 billion by 2020, <laughs> is struggling with funds. Uh, so it has $10 billion, uh, USD in pledges, out of which $4 billion actually exist. So it's peanuts, you know, 104 mm. So that is the stark difference. So the rich have been very reluctant to shell out the money, and we developing countries want a clear road map and who should we be giving how much according to their historical responsibility, and which we think is our rightful, you know, we should have equitable access to funds. Then second, as he's pointed out the issue of differentiation, just wanted to point out that uh, over the years the climate negotiation has happened. Initially, according to the convention, it was annex-based differentiation, where countries were divided on the basis of development into annex one, which were the rich and developed yes. countries, and non-annex annex one, the developing developing. But over the years now, differentiation has been diluted, mm. heavily diluted. Now it is more taking the shape of self-differentiation, mm. which is reflected in the form of INDCs, mm. where countries choose mm. choose what they want to do. Right. They can choose the scope, they can choose the ambition. So it is morely self-differentiation, where I differentiate my target from other countries. And the
1: the historical, historical culpability, culpability is completely, completely done, done away with it. Yes, the yeah. so that is why politics. we
0: fight for annex-based differentiation. But Umbrella Group, which comprises mostly the rich countries, press for self-differentiation. So this is going to be another very pressing issue in Paris. And third is the review mechanism. See, the synthesis report, which talks about the aggregate synthesis, is not the review of ambition. It is the review of result. Mm. The implementation right. part. Right. Say, okay, the result. But we need an ex-ante review, like which was a proposal floated by the African group, that it should be on ambition as per the historical responsibility of who should be emitting how much. Right. The stock it's not that you can flows, just, yeah. yes, the stock versus flows, as you rightly pointed out. So, but we don't have that in place. Mm. So the aggregate just talks about the aggregate effect of it. It doesn't talk about who should be doing that. So I think this is what we also should press for in the sense of an ex ante or a review that can assess the ambition about the countries. That should form the basis of the Paris Agreement also along with the other issues.
1: Now let's talk about something that you've been part of. 0.5% of the global population, 17.5% of the global emissions and 44 times per capita emission compared to India. We are talking a book called Capitan America, U.S.'s Climate Goals, mm. a a must-read. We are providing the link along with the podcast mm. also. And Vijeta, it's authored by Vijeta's colleagues, Sunita Narayan and Chandra Bhushan, and Vijeta was the lead researcher for that. So tell us about your immediate reaction, considering you've actually crossed the numbers and U.S.'s action, reluctance, whatever it is, I, yes. or I inaction action. or grandstanding. Yes. <laughs> In an inaction, how do you see U.S., European Union, 28 countries, Japan, and Australia, the big, big force role till now, and how do you see U.S.S. Um, INDC also? I believe you've also reacted to that. Your organization's reacted to that.
0: Yeah. So, so the reaction has been very good in the sense of I think this is the first report done by a southern country to assess the U.S. Yes. because all throughout it happens yes. that they come and tell us that you should be doing this, China should be doing this, Bangladesh will be doing this. But it's the first time that uh, a southern country has come out with this. And for
1: our listeners, this is again a recurring theme. In the first episode on financing for development, we talked about tax inspectors without border, how the rich OECD countries have (coughs) the God-ordained right, the divine right to tell the rest of the world what to do about tax evasion and illicit financial flows while they refuse to plug the gaps. Yes, 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 so, so this, this name, it's, not captain, design, right? yes. it's, it's
0: not, not captain America, as some people misread it, it is Capitan America, that which means, means yes, a useless captain. captain. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this is the meaning of this term. <laughs> so there are
1: so many of them, Nitin, we can list within our country, no? for which Capitan would be a fantastic term,
0: no? <laughs> Sorry, let's go back to
1: Vijeta. Oh, let her
5: complete and I think then yes. we'll join in.
0: <laughs> so... The important question is why we took on the U.S. That is the most like prime, prime question about. So we took the U.S. because the U.S. has been the climate denier. Okay, so even in the formation of the UNFCCC, it was active, but it was more pushy in terms of like, uh, pushing targets for developing countries and all. Then, as you all must be knowing, it pulled out of Kyoto Protocol. Kyoto Protocol was weak because it did not have U.S. in it the target initially proposed was 20% reduction for all annex 1 that means the rich countries but it boiled down to just 5% and the us again even then opted out of it so and then in bali action plan we have this awg lca which had the us we in have it the you okay again it's a technical so it means <laughs> it, it means ad hoc working group on long term cooperative action so the us got into the picture for the long term cooperative action now, the U.S. in Cancun Agreement, which was a pledge, it was the agreement taken in Cancun Summit in 2010, the U.S. talked about and it pledged 30% emission cut by 2025 below 2005 levels. And now when it has come out with its INDC, it talks about just 26 to 28% reduction by 2025 against 2005 levels. 2005 is the peaking year yes. when the emissions peaked. So, the contribution is even less than what it had proposed earlier in Cancun. That is first important point. The second is that, okay, the second important point is that its INDC is not ambitious by any term. Mm. So there's all this, you know, the big galleries, and and you're talking about the ambitious climate action plan of US, and the INDC, and the Clean Power Plan, if you have heard. Mm. That is nothing, that's just 32% reduction by 2025. So we have taken on the US, masking, because the US has masked its emissions by forestry, by fuel efficiency, not by uh, less consumption. So in this report, we have used sector by sector, dissected it, seen what the US has done. We have come out with very interesting results that 86% of the US people use cars. Mm public transportation is going down. We have crunched very significant and interesting numbers like the money that the US use on cosmetics is equal to the money India uses on its food. Mm. So it is the equivalent, you can see. So we have come out with very interesting numbers like that. And the most important is that the US will not reduce its emissions very significantly in future also. What it will do, it will switch to gas. And gas is again a fossil fuel, though it's a clean fuel, but it is a fossil fuel nevertheless, because gas is cheaper in US. So it is not doing much, it will not do much. And the fact is that its consumption will go on increasing. As George Bush senior very uh, talked about in the UNFCCC that American lifestyle is Mm non-negotiable. So, so that, that is the american standpoint even now
1: is also another it is there
0: right? 40% food is wasted in us that's what our report says and our report is not based on the data of indian organizations or that we have used eia we have used epa we have used wri we, we have, have used all their resources.
1: resources institute environmental protection, protection protection and eias
0: it's the it's again the uh, administration authority of that uh, and the food
1: waste <laughs> thing is really important. It's at the heart of justice for our listeners, because one seventh of the, the the numbers vary. The Food and Agriculture Organization says 795 million people, which is about one fourteenth of the global population, goes to bed hungry. Whereas various estimates, including Ben's previous avatar in the If campaign, said one billion people go to bed hungry. And while one-seventh of the global population goes to bed hungry, 33% of the global food from farm to fork gets wasted. So that's at the heart of inequality.
0: Inequality. Just one point, that 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 from 1850 to 2011, US has emitted 411 billion tons of carbon dioxide, meaning 21% of total carbon emissions has been done by US alone, the dawn of industrial revolution till 2011. Okay,
1: okay till the, the embassy, embassy starts, starts calling your research <laughs> as propaganda, sheer propaganda, propaganda. <laughs> propaganda. What do you think of the rest of the three, uh, of the big four? EU, 28, Japan and Australia. Yeah. Um, Raghu,
3: Just before I come to the others, a uh. couple of words about the US.
1: Oh, uh, you'll also join in the party of bashing.
3: Uh, see, the US it's the reality check 26, 27%. You straight away <laughs> should subtract 17% from that. because Why? those the US emissions had increased by 17% hmm. from 1990, which was the base year set for everybody for the yes. Kyoto Protocol, until 2005. Uh. So they've already gone 17% plus. So when they say they'll go minus 26%, you knock off 17% straight. So all that they are talking about now is a 10% so it reduction. 13%
0: to...
3: Whereas the Europeans are still using 1990 as the uh, baseline, the uh, reference point. Yeah, and the reference uh, point. So the US has got one foot, along with the differentiated developing countries, which have tended to use 2005 uh, as a base year, while the rest of the Annex 1 countries continue to use 1990, although. Now, following the US example, and that's the point I wanted to make, the US has driven the entire negotiations process and converted it to a race to the bottom. Ah, the regression mode. Yes. So, Japan also has set a 2005 uh, baseline uh, number. Australia has gone down that route. Canada has gone down that uh, road. so, many of these countries are following the U.S. example by setting under-ambitious uh, targets, shifting the baseline uh, forward, which makes their targets even worse. Compared to all those, as expected, the EU comes out shining. Shining. Ah. If, uh, so if your reference points
1: are this are so bad, if your comparators are this bad. yeah. Exactly.
3: So, the EU targets are... Still with the 1990 reference point and a 40% reduction, uh, which they have offered. Which, given the present scenario, is not a bad target. Mm. Of course, if you took historical responsibility into account and you took a fair allocation of remaining carbon budgets across all the countries, the European target should have been higher. But then, in a world where everybody has got such low targets, to expect now the Europeans to do so much better than the targets they have announced, I think would be unrealistic. But if countries in the south exert the kind of pressure which they could in Paris, then I think there is a prospect of driving the, the ambition, ambition upwards. But given the fact that the United States is not going to move from this uh, figure, apart from the domestic pressures the Senate and the Congress taking the kinds of positions that they have, Obama negotiating with one hand tied behind his uh, back and not being able to move. I don't see the U.S. budging and therefore many of the other Annex 1 countries will tend to follow the American example and stick to their underambitious goals.
1: Since News Laundry is a media critique and media engagement site, and they do fantastic satire, I think underwhelming as an English word got a makeover thanks to US. Let joined join the party. So Your assessment I, on the four big ones.
5: I would disagree partly with my panelists here for one reason. I think we gotta be clear. If we say Europe is the leader, and it has been at one stage, then you gotta act like the leader. Then there can be no excuse not to act like the leader. If you aren't, then claim up to being saying we were the leaders. So um, if you look at the civil society review that came up recently talking about fair shares, clearly Europe is as far behind on its responsibility, if not as badly as US, but is also regressing by the day. Mm. Now, in that phase, I don't think one should say, oh, well, you know, Europe's got a more internationalist position. It does want to be leaders, but it's restrained by... It's just convenient and self-preservative. That's that's a nice reason. That's how all countries behave in some sense. Leaders act differently. Yes. And then again, I think as a journalist, I'm allowed to have a degree of cynicism about nation states to begin with. Absolutely. Bring
1: in the skepticism.
5: So the skepticism, if you look at regardless of any blocks of countries, I would say you should look at their acts and their rhetoric and have a degree of understanding that there will be a differential between the two. Let me give you an example. In that, in fact, I would give US some credit. US way back when it joined the Bali conversation in Bali in 2007 and wanted to get back into the game, they very clearly stated, we will not take deep action early on in the decades. We will do that towards 2050 and later. They've stuck to their guns and they've been rather brazen about it. Now, whether you like it or not is second, but they've been upfront, consistent, and saying it in as many forums as they can. And they've the never other, hidden the from it.
1: Flip-flopped. The
5: others flip-flopped. Europe has found that as a nice excuse to say, oh, well, you know, nobody's doing, our competitiveness is losing, we are losing out to competitive issues, etc., and therefore we will also fall in line. So while they've been talking till almost, even if you look at the European Commission's mandate now, it talks about a protocol. Will Europe get it? Will Europe fight for it? No. Why? Because it has to fight the US. So this duplicity at all ends, we must admit that's how nature, I mean, nation states operate. Now, even if you look at, say, get out of the developed versus developing, you look at the developing economies itself. There's some amount of duplicity there as well. We'll talk
1: about that. We actually have a question dedicated to that. Ben, in your avatar as the leader of the Enough Food If campaign, the fact that you also served in salad and soup kitchen to experience the hunger in the United Kingdom firsthand, how do you see the role of this big four? and you've also gone on BBC Radio and very many media platforms to talk about the inequity in the rich countries also. How do you see the Big Four role uh, in the climate uh, summit?
4: So none of the Big Four powers are anywhere close to meeting their responsibilities, what would be needed, what the science says, and what would be a fair share. None of them are close. I think it's a mistake to see this as a consequence of some intellectual debate. People sometimes say, for example, about the U.S., that there's an issue of climate denialism. There isn't. Um, Overwhelmingly, people in the U.S. recognize that uh, climate change is causing damage and man is responsible for that damage. The reason, when you look at those politicians and you think, oh, why are they being so stupid? Why don't they understand climate change? Look at their and you'll find that they're not stupid; they're being extremely clever. Likewise, when you look at these so-called skeptical think tankers that are paid for by oil tankers, this is a a, a plan. Um, This is fossil fuel money drowning democracy. This is the old playbook that was used by the tobacco lobby before it was used by the fossil fuel lobby. In fact, many of the same individuals moved straight on from lying for tobacco to lying for the fossil fuel industry. So this is part of a, a strategy. The answer is pressure from outside the US and the big economies, but it's also pressure from within. And we saw, for example, in New York, hundreds of thousands of people march, overwhelmingly at that march, Americans. There are people in, in the US, campaign groups, ordinary citizens, faith groups, and others, who are determined to see action on climate change. So it, it is possible. You're talking about the change 2014 change the March.
1: Moment. You're talking about the 2014 climate march, right? The September, the one that. Uh, yes preceded the General Assembly. And what
4: that shows is that there is a constituency. But at the moment, what the politicians are doing, and politicians are offering, is nowhere near to what's needed.
1: Right. And also, uh, the point that you made about uh, US acting really smart and self-preservative and self-interest, but that's not exactly the self-interest of the entire country, but it's primarily big oil, and before that, big tobacco. Raghu, I think that's a fantastic segue for something that you have been ranting about and outraging on and also writing very well-researched, boring academic papers on, the cleft stick that India sits on, the brand ambassador of equity avatar that it dons globally and the inequitous principles that it uh, acquires internally. So from 2011 Durban to 2015 Paris, different political parties but same stance more or less, what do you think of India's stance, and how measure it up vis-a-vis the internal stance it ah. takes intra-country?
3: Uh, well, uh, from
1: farmers to fisherfolk, to yeah. borrow another one uh, of your
3: phrases, my take has uh, for long been that uh, while India has focused so much on equity between nations, uh, it has not articulated positions regarding equity within uh, our nation. And I think uh, without even having to go very far back, uh, I think India's position has largely been externally driven, meaning that it's responded to the international negotiations and has taken a position which it thinks projects its uh, position in the international forum. It has not seen the emissions control requirement, targets, goals for India as something which stems from uh, a domestic requirement. One, like we talked about right in the beginning, India is one of the countries in the top 10 nations worst affected by climate change. That means India should have been in the forefront of demanding and pushing for an ambitious uh, agenda agenda and an ambitious emissions control uh, goal, globally. However, we have left it to the island states, to the Africa group, to the least developed countries, to put it across as an existential problem, as if it's not an existential problem for India, which it is. That's one. The second aspect is that how we are going to go about doing whatever reductions that we have pledged, whether this is at Copenhagen or it is now, whether this has thought through what these pledges mean to, for reduction of the huge and increasing inequity which exists in our country in terms of access to energy uh, is not clear at all. Even if you look at the INDCs that India has uh, articulated, which has tried to put forward a set of domestic uh, goals and policy statements, except bar the odd lip service here or there, it really doesn't address the heart of this issue of inequitable access to energy inside this country, whether it is to electricity, whether it is in transportation, uh, or whatever. So I think on these two counts, I think India is has a problem. And India has a problem, part of which is um, generated by the way in which India has approached the international negotiations. But also, part of it is due to the Uh, situation in which India is uh, located, which is what I have called the cleft stick. India is a poor developing country Country. with extremely poor developmental indicators across the board. Free
1: bed level, nutrition. But at the same
3: time, India has projected itself and India is in that sense a victim of its own hype, Ah, has projected itself as this great power in the world with this fantastic rate of economic uh, growth. And therefore, the whole world expects India uh, to step up and take on ambitious targets and do this, that, and uh, the other. So a victim of its own PR also. And India will find it very difficult to step back from that uh, hype.
5: Can I... Nitin? yes. So on this case, I think I largely disagree with what he's saying. and I'll try and explain to it. Clearly these negotiations are between nation states. These are not between the poor and the rich of the world. When nation states engage, they engage on the basis of what happens internationally, not what happens within the domestic boundaries. No country, without exception, has detailed their energy plans in the INDC. The INDC is only supposed to give a headline number that is committed internationally. What happens within that number is really our decision as a domestic decision to be taken by the citizens of the country. And I'm very glad it's so in some ways because I would not expect that if my prime minister is not doing right by me, president of the US will do right by me. I would rather depend and trust that our democratic processes get better to get a better understanding of how the differentials in the country can be resolved. Two, what are the options with a country like India? As Ragu's rightly saying, there I agree. It's at a position where it's sometimes hyped itself and wanted to. You've heard last time the chief economic advisor saying, you know, we should sit with these guys and that guys, and we should forget the, the, G77. the G77. Now, in the case that we're here, the two major players in the blocks existing in the game is Europe and US. Now, what are our options? And these are the pragmatic options available. There's US. Let's look at Europe first, which is seen generally as a climate leader in some sense it says everyone should do more initially at least it began saying everyone should do more except we won't give any funds and technology for it Mm. but we'll bind you into a deep binding agreement on the other hand india has the option of us which says at the moment we will not do more we'll do more towards the end of the century middle of the century we will not bind you to a deep agreement which will not lock you down now that is the real choice that india is making now I can say that this will not work out for the environment, but this is really the two big guys dictating terms to the rest of the world, and you've got to pick out of that. Now, how it changes if I suddenly say, let's in- let India become the leader. What does that really mean in terms of, what does it really do to the environment, what it, does, what it does to our development indices? If we were to take deeper emission cuts, intrinsic questions like moving away from firewood to fossil fuel burning, would we want to make those changes or say, should we look at them again? Now, even if we were saying, if you look at the numbers that we've given in the INDC and we're talking about coal, we are going to increase coal rapidly. Now, I could say that's not really good for environmental reasons, but the fact is, it would get domestically tempered by a very domestic environmental concerns like resource sharing. Land, water, displacement itself will temper these things down, but that, again, is a domestic debate to be held within the country. I would not hold my country open to international community for things that have to be discussed domestically within us to resolve these issues of inequity no country is doing it climate change forum the un negotiations are not the forum for these debates these are domestic decisions to be taken and each country is adrift with these differentiations including europe with poland eastern europe versus rest of europe having the same issues to deal with three where do you want to shift to in the next 10 15 years what does India want to go? It does have to increase its energy consumption. It has a limited basket of resources to look at. It will need to ramp it up. Shall it become the leader by taking on a burden it's not fair upon the country? No, it will become perhaps more efficient even with its resources where issues like simply putting up a good, better grids, looking at more equity in distribution of energy but again, these are not on the table in Paris. These are on the table for what the government is now deciding an energy policy for the country, which is to be decided by 2015, December, by the Niti Aayog. Now, that's where these debates have to be fought. We should not confuse domestic arguments with what is happening at the international fora. Completely two different games. We must realize as much as we'd want that the poor of the world fight the rich of the world to get better share, Climate change negotiations are between nation states.
1: But Nathan, aren't we living in a world with sunshine, or at least transparency is increasing in a globally connected world? So the dichotomy. I think that's all and hype. And preach- I
5: don't think that's really true. I don't think there is any change happening in the way the negotiations are working. There is a civil society which is perhaps coming true. But again there, if you look at the civil society, there is a huge bridge, a drift between the northern civil society and southern civil society. It reflects these debates. It's not as if the global civil societies all come together and say, you know, unless the US does this, I will give away my US citizenship. That's not going to happen. Let's be real about this. That's
1: really interesting point, Nitin, that you raised. This is very interesting. While we do see international solidarity on issues like in illicit financial flows, STGs, financing for development. When it comes to climate negotiations, the civil societies are actually aping their, almost photostating their own country positions also. that's, uh, that's Except that's for the really southern important. ones. A lot yes.
5: of southern ones are actually aping the Europe very often, which is weird, mm-hmm. I find.
1: Vijayta, your organization has been at the forefront of uh, pro-public transport, pro-equity stance and... So how do you look at it? Uh, we'll still, I think we still need to discuss this about how, yeah. what are the... I agree with uh, Nitin
0: to a large extent that uh, these are two different things, what you do domestically. And please understand, equity in climate negotiation it doesn't mean equal. This is a different term. Equity is more reflected in differentiated responsibility. <laughs> Though the UNFCCC has not defined it explicitly, yes. we must not confuse it between it. So India, we at CSE also push for equity. India pushes for equity, and that is why we think that equity can be operationalized if we can have a deal of global carbon budget Mm. in the Paris Agreement, which thanks to Bolivia, we have it in the text. Mm. But it's a hell of a hope to believe that... uh, it will be in the fa- uh, part of the final agreement as well. But we think that uh, this is the only way by which we can operationalize equity and equitable burden sharing among nations.
1: Um, for our listeners, again, I'm, we are sorry uh, we've lost Ben and we are trying to establish contact. But until then, we can continue the conversation with our kick-ass slash fantastic panel. <laughs> Raghu,
3: yeah. we, I just you want to, to come, come back on, on this, this. one? Yes. Yeah,
1: We're really uh, running out of time. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Couple of minutes. Uh,
1: A couple of seconds. All right.
3: Uh, I am far from arguing that uh, India's domestic policies should be discussed in international fora. That's not what I'm saying at all. And I completely agree that these two things are different. In fact, if India's INDCs had just been one paragraph to say this is the headline reduction we are going to do, fair enough. But my point is once you determine a low-carbon pathway for the country, whether it is placed internationally or not, you have now placed it domestically. And you have said, this is what we are going to do. Now, I am therefore concerned whether this low-carbon pathway that we have put forward also pushes an equity agenda inside the country or does it not? Uh, And I need to be concerned uh, about that. I cannot divorce myself from saying, look, this is what we have said at Paris. Then we'll have a separate dialogue over there because these are intertwined processes. And I think the whole point of what were called the intended nationally determined contributions was that each country needs to work out and have a dialogue inside the country to decide what is going to be its pathway for the future. And that internal dialogue, I think, is necessary, would have brought up these questions because there are different pathways that you can take, a pathway that would give you greater equity inside the country and a pathway which will not, which may still reduce uh, the carbon. Which way do we go? And I think that's an important question to address.
1: And that's an important conversation to have internally. That's right. And probably this is the inflection point for that. So, final. Wrap it up for us. In 30 seconds, what are your expectations from Paris COP?
0: Yeah, Yeah. so, candidly, if I have to say, then, of course, there will be a deal in Paris. It's highly questionable that it will be ambitious. It will be fair. But we will have a deal. Second thing is that uh, what we can do best is to unite as as developing countries and push for equity, push for differentiated responsibility, as in the principles of convention, push for global carbon budget and a strong ex ante review mechanism, which bases and assesses the uh, INDCs based on ambition and not purely on result.
1: And when you say ex-ante, the reference prior. point would be?
0: The prior uh, assessment of... 2005, depicting, yeah? No, it's not, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not that, it's just the... No, for listeners you have to... Yeah, that ex-ante is prior. X means prior. Yeah. So, ex-ante is prior review of INDCs based
5: on ambition. Before the, about, before the Paris Agreement kicks in in 2020, is what right. she's into to. Before, before yeah. it comes again. into force,
0: so it needs to be part of the Paris Agreement about who should be doing what, hmm. according to the historical responsibility. So,
5: I think what Vegeta is saying is the ideal. I don't think it will happen for two good reasons. And it shouldn't happen for two good reasons because we'll definitely got not get any developed countries to talk about equity, historical responsibilities, because that's a red line for all of them. In that case, if you don't have these, having an ex-ante review is a dangerous term because then you're landing up in a scale where you, there's nothing to measure you against except what they desire. In that sense, you are going to land up with something along the US lines Is that the best you can live with, perhaps? At least what the U.S. model in some sense has shown is that more countries have joined in. Now the question is, can there be trust built over the next three, four years where the systems open up, where they set the rules such that countries feel confident that everyone's going to walk further and not ratchet back? I think that's the best you can achieve.
1: And that's a really important point. For our listeners, we've been talking about what are you counting, who are you counting, and when are you counting. So the Exante Review and the time when it happens and if it's everybody's aping the US footstep, I think that's...
5: Let me give you a very hmm. quick reason of why the Exant is not going to be possible. You have a review of the the IPCC report that needs to be brought out. There's a review of the entire conventions operation that needs to be brought out. Now, unless you took that into account, all you're going to review is the mitigation end and not the finance and other means of implementation. In a way, if you did an ex ante right now, you give it's a cop-out for all the developed countries because you're not reviewing their means of implementation delivery. You're just doing mitigation, which is exactly what the developed world wants, that you de-link the means of implementation from mitigation you get away with it, it sounds very nice, we've got you know a review happening, but what are you really reviewing, which is the point you're making? You, you review the functioning of the convention and the enhancement of the convention's actions, not just the few mitigation targets that each developed country is given.
1: And that to voluntarily also yes. with without any minimum mandatory.
5: But still the rules not in place. Europe is saying next year they set the rules by which these metrics would be measured after they have the Paris Agreement. So we don't even know what those forty percent really means, even for Europe.
1: Another recurring theme for our listeners in this series has been the means of implementation. We heard that in the SDG summit, we're hearing that in the UNFCC also. And also the fact that indicators are being set way after the the deals have been inked and the ink has dried up. Raghu, I actually wanted to wrap up on the morning after, what happens after the ink is dry.
3: Uh, The morning after is always uh, important because it reflects the mood of the previous night. Uh, Uh, So, let me begin with the previous night uh, first. I think it would be a mistake for us to um, uh, confuse what is likely to happen with what should Should happen. happen. Uh, And I think we should not allow what is likely to happen to drive what should happen what should happen should push what is likely to happen. And I think efforts should be directed towards that. Whether an ex ante review takes place within the summit or not, I think is less important than the fact ex ante review will definitely take place outside the summit. I'm sure you will get a lot of information coming out as to what the implications of these uh, targets and goals are. One of the things that could be pushed for on the floor of the summit is, if you've got a target, it's what the Brazilians had proposed a couple of summits back, could concentric we have a concentric circles. circles kind of argument, where if all these things are going to mean 3 degrees Celsius, can we go back, have another round of discussions and come back with revised targets which would oh, bring us work closer backwards,
1: yeah, to 2 uh,
3: degrees Celsius. If That's the planetary push,
1: boundaries donut yeah, argument so also. if we
3: push for something, there's greater chances of it likely to happen. If we sit back and say this is not likely to happen, then nothing is going to happen. Now I'll come to the the morning after. The morning after is going to be really tough. Uh, It's going to be really tough because we know we are not going to reach anywhere near what we want, whether it's on mitigation, it's on adaptation, it's on finance, or anything like that. And we are going to be racing uphill. Uh, to avoid sliding back uh, into the precipice. And we all of us ought to be readying ourselves for the battles that we know are going to come after the summit.
1: For our listeners again, this is dangerously and inspiringly close to Thomas Sankara, the African hero who also said, let's not be bound by our current realities and let's actually chart how the world should be and then make it happen. We also kept hearing that in the STG summit about ambition versus pragmatism. Kate Raworth has written a fantastic paper on planetary boundaries and the donut principle. We'll be also providing a link for that. Since Nitin, whose dispatches acquired a cult status, joined late, he has to now wrap it up for us. And this is, has to be the wrap up.
5: Okay, so I would wrap up with a very odd tone. The duplicity of the civil society itself The fact that we've completely forgotten inequity sets in the moment the period between 2015 and 2020 is not talked of. The fact that we'll have a hiatus of action between now and 2020 from developed countries automatically sets us on a path of inequity. And we've seen almost a dead silence from global civil society talking about this phase. Unless you ramp up actions on this part, you are clearly pushing the burden onto developing countries in the post-2020 period. The fact that even we forgot sitting here, all five of us sitting here, completely forgot—that's cru- crucial. If you don't have a base which is equitous, you clearly cannot have a post facto argument, regardless of whether you do an ex ante post facto review, etc., etc. Your base is skewed.
1: So, what would you suggest in that case? Maybe for the civil society, the fact and the that listeners.
5: the global civil society should actually be ramping up pressures, saying. Increase your targets between now and 2020, both for mitigation and means of implementation. Show us the 100 billion US dollars, ramp up the numbers that you've already achieved because they were set so low to begin with and make that the base because that will have forced the develop emerging economies also to take greater action. It will build trust. Without more action between now and 2020, there is no trust
1: and there could not be a better tone to end this episode. That was our curtain raiser for COP21. We lost Ben Phillips in between because of technical glitches. But like I said, I would like to again say two of our panelists had cough. They actually set tea to continue this conversation. And Ben is one of those iconic figures with a huge body of work on justice, equity, and anti-hunger agenda. So probably kick-ass and fantastic are good words to choose, but we're calling for suggestions for new words also. So new equitable world order or cup-out. Please stay tuned for the post-summit reactive too. Thank you for listening to News Laundry Podcast. Global summits, where are we going? We would like to thank our collaborators, Save the Children India, the leading nonprofit dedicated to children for their support in bringing this program to you. This is part of their global campaign Action 2015 to build public awareness and pressure on world leaders for just global deals for a just future for all. The episode was produced by Karthik Nijhavan from Team News Laundry. In the next episode, we'll bring the curtain raiser to World Trade Organization Ministerial in Nairobi, scheduled in December, right after the COP21. Please remember, in the recently concluded India-Africa Summit, the Afro-nations have told India not to yield on drug patents and push back on evergreening. We'll take stock of the WTO interministerials too. We would love to hear from you, give us your feedback, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. And for all of you supporting the show and wanting more, please promote, share and use the show links. We need hits, much more hits, if we are to continue making more of this beyond this series of global summits. And please support independent media so you can decide where are we going. This is Biraj Swain signing off for News Laundry.
2: Catch all new episodes of Global
5: Summits Where Are We Going? on newslaundry.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook.